Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And welcome to Secure the Insecure, the podcast where I say it's okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Seifert, and every week I'm joined by one very special guest. Joining me this week, she is Britain's best sex and relationships expert. I'm sorry to Dr. Pam Spurter, Anna Williamson, all my other sex and relationship friends. Um, but you're also the best. But for the purposes of this podcast, she is the best. I came across her, actually, because Eamon Holmes introduced me to her as she released her first book, The Endless Autumn, a couple of years ago. Honestly, one of the best sexy books I've ever read. If you like that bit of sex, um, like Fifty Shades of Grey, you'll love it. It is set in a brothel. That's all I'm saying. She's come back with another book, Chasing Clouds. It is not got a lot of sex in it, although I'm only halfway through. At recording this podcast, I'm on page 240, and I feel really guilty because I've not finished it yet, but I'm loving it so much that I'm trying to savour it. Um, the book's called Chasing Clouds. It honestly is brilliant, but there's no sex yet, so I'm hoping, as a sex and relationships expert, sex will come into it at some point. I'm delighted to say, joining me on Security and Secure, it's my dear friend, Annabelle Knight. Hello, Annabelle. Oh, that was such a lovely introduction. If you, if this was like recorded video wise, you would see that I am grinning ear for ear. Oh, you know I love the end of Salt and your first, but it was brilliant. <laughs> I did. I had so much fun writing that book. I lo- I loved it. It was um, it was my first novel, and it was so much fun. Uh, it was a massive learning curve, but I loved every moment of it. Well, it was things like, because I remember the brothel had different rooms and I was like, God, I'm like this little, I feel like I'm a 16-year-old boy opening my eyes up into this other world that might exist. So that was a, the kind of, what I wanted to do with Autumn was to sh- to kind of make the more taboo side of sex more accessible for re- for like regular people that aren't into like kind of fetish and kink. Um, and really try and normalise it. And I've had loads of people off the back of it say, I had no idea that was even a thing, but me and my partner have tried it, or I've tried it, or you've given me ideas. So it's not like, it's just the kind of a, a bonus of writing the book is that I've helped a lot of people to kind of uh, kind of expand their pleasure horizons. 
Well, that's the thing. And as a sex and relationships expert, I'd like to think you've got a bit of knowledge. So let's go back. Before we talk about your book, Chasing Clouds, let's go back to the beginning for you, Annabelle. What was that moment that you thought, I'm having such good sex, I'm now going to tell the world about it and give you tips as well? Oh, my goodness, it's actually the opposite. I was having no sex. I was finding it really difficult to kind of date people. I was getting messed around. I was like, you know, just lost all hope. And I was finding it really difficult to kind of access uh, support and information in a way that appealed to me. So it was kind of like a gap in the market that I thought, I'm just going to have to fill it. So that's where it kind of stemmed from. Uh, And I've always had an interest in psychology. I've got psychology qualifications and I always have loved like reading Agony Ant columns. Like I used to read Tracy Cox all the time and Dear Deirdre, of course, is the queen of the Agony Ants. Always used to read her. So I kind of wanted to to be the the person they handed that torch over to. So I did a couple of counselling qualifications. I got a diploma in psychosexual therapy. Uh, I got qualified in life coaching. I kind of just did a few things to um, make sure I was really well equipped to help people and couples in the best way that I could. And I think that's really important. And something we sometimes forget is, for example, same with uh, in a chef industry. If you want to become the head chef of a restaurant, you've got to train and learn how to do pastry inside that, learn how to do fish, learn how to do meat, learn how to do desserts, starters, everything in between. You have to be a one-trick pony and you have to be able to do a bit of everything. And same with you, with relationships and counselling. You can't just say, I want to be a counsellor and that's it. You've got to be able to experience all different walks of life to help people. I think sometimes we're in this concern that people think, well, I'm going to train in one speciality and that's it. And actually, you need to be able to do everything. Yeah, it's definitely kind of a a juggling act because there's like, I mean, I don't need to tell you, everyone has experienced relationships in different formats and different ways. And there's sometimes been good, sometimes been really bad but they're multifaceted. So you have to be really aware of all those different nuances within love and lust and limerence so that you can help people properly and give them really good advice that they can act on and and better themselves and their relationships. And when people are meeting you in terms of a potential match, you said you were dating a lot and you couldn't get a date and they found out you were a sex and relationships expert. Did they think, yes, She's a sex relationship sex, but we'll just go straight to the bedroom. She knows what she's doing. That is oh, pretty much 100% my uh, ex, my earlier days experience, especially when I was kind of in my mid to late 20s and I was living in London. And, you know, you, you go on the dating websites and the apps and you can meet a lot of people in a really short space of time. And, uh, yeah, the reaction was pretty much the same every single time. It got so boring because it became... I almost became like the elephant in the room. Like I didn't want to mention it because the second you say, oh, I work in sex education, I'm a sex educator, the, the educator part and the education part kind of it falls on deaf ears and just the word sex is the thing that gets heard. And then everything becomes about that side of a relationship. And when you're looking to meet someone, to settle down and you know plan a life with someone, it, there's so much more to it than just sex. But do people understand that? Because I can imagine at a dinner party, it would either be, right, give me all your sex advice and here's all my problems, or it's, well, 
I, I don't really want to engage in this conversation. I'm quite prudish when it comes to sex and actually I want to keep it private and not air it out in public. Yeah, absolutely. There's, 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 people definitely fall into those two categories, but even the prudish people kind of want to know what your job entails. So they might skirt around or dance around some of the stickier topics. But they do want to know, like, you know, how is it you pay your mortgage with sex? Like, how does how does that come about? Because it's I realize it's not a regular job. And when I go to friends' houses, I'm meeting new people. You know, my job title is not one you tend to hear across the dinner table. Um, but I am a really good listener. I love getting to know new people. and I love talking to new people and, and finding out what makes them tick. So for the most part, I I, I take on the role of kind of, I don't want to say counsellor at a dinner party, but that's my natural role is to take a seat back and a step back and listen to other people. So we tend to talk about other people. Um, I'm quite good at, you know, if I get to a point where I'm like a bit bored of the, not the same questions, but the questions that are just the one, the instant ones. Like, oh, one I get all the time is the fact that because I work in the sex education industry, people automatically feel they have a right to know about your sex life. And it just doesn't work like that at all. Do we all. not? And it, it, no, not at mm. all. Uh, it's, uh, sadly, it's um, you know something people do want to know about. But they feel that you know I can ask. They can ask me anything, which they can. But you're still talking to a regular person who I have a husband, I have a family, I have friends, and you know all the normal things that everyone else has. Um, and just because I work in sex education doesn't mean that my personal sex life is up for grabs. What have you learned about yourself, though? So apart from that you don't want to be explicit about your own sex life, what have you learned about yourself through those types of conversations and this journey that you've been on? Oh, I've learned that I have a lot more patience than I ever kind of give myself credit for. Um, I always feel like, oh, if I get asked this again, you know, there's always a moment before you go out when you're meeting new people where you think, like you always imagine kind of the worst-case scenario. And there's been a few incidents or in yeah um in the past where people have automatically taken a very negative view about what i do and have gone on the attack so um they'll ask questions like oh god are you, do you still speak to your parents did they disown you or what happens if you have children what are you going to tell them oh my god i couldn't do that to my kids they'd be so embarrassed and they take a very personal kind of attacking stance and i always kind of you know, you're getting ready and curling my hair and putting some lipstick on. And I think, oh, how am I, if that happens, how am I going to answer this time? And in my head, I always go, well, I'm just going to tell that person and I'm going to be really straight with them and I'm going to tell them they're being rude and that, that you know, they shouldn't think like that. And then it happens and I'm just like, okay, this this person is has a genuine concern and it's coming from a good place. It's It's coming from a place of ignorance rather than anything else like they don't know and that's why they are saying those things so i always see it now as an opportunity to enlighten rather than someone personally attacking me because they just want to but has that changed with sex education on netflix obviously series three with jenny nansen's coming out soon where she was very mm-hmm. open with that and also pornography even that the fact that it is so accessible open now people are trying new things especially with lockdown over the past year people have been more thinking about what they do in the bedroom and obviously Pornhub for example being one of those websites that's taken down a lot of the illegal videos and only left up the ones which are verified now. I mean there has been a a shift in kind of the general approach to sex. I I want to say 
Yeah, we're, we're getting there. It's great. We are getting there, but it is a slow and steady uh, progress, you know, uh, process. The, the fact that our sex education is so poor in this country leads to a lot of shame and stigma around sex as you go through puberty and as you get older and become sexual yourself. So that is, you know, that, that kind of negative message is reinforced with other messages that you get throughout your life. And then it's com- com- kind of compounded when you reach adulthood, um, which is why people my age in their mid and late 30s still react to my job title or can react to my job title quite negatively because if they think it's shameful or they think it's something that you know shouldn't be talked about, it's between two people and that's it. But definitely the, you know, the younger generations are um, becoming more vocal. Like sex education on, on platforms such as TikTok is really great because it makes it fun and accessible and kind of takes the stigma out of it. So I think um, in that way, sex education is, is becoming something new. Um, I, I am hopeful that it will continue to kind of grow and become something that it, we talk about more. And I'd love to see professional sex educators being employed by schools to educate the children, because I think it's quite unfair to ask, you know, like your maths teacher that you see every day to, to talk about these things that they may not be comfortable with themselves. So, yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to see some more changes, but I am very grateful for the changes that have been made already. Well, this is the big problem, because when you look at PSHE in school and you're remembering what you had when you were growing up and it was, you know, for example, you had drugs line come in to talk about the do's and don'ts of drugs and these are what the classes of drugs are. And you do have those sex conversations. Sex conversations will very much be this is what a pregnancy is this is sex in its most basic form make sure you use a condom or maybe it's here's a banana here's a condom this is how you put it on but Mm -hmm. they don't talk about the other aspect and i think the problem is is there's three things actually firstly it's the age because when you are 12 years old or 16 years old you're too young to actually learn about a lot of this when you're you know there's a difference between knowing about it and actually exploring and i think when it comes to sex it's so individualistic it's very hard because everyone does it at different times. So you've got those who might lose their virginity at 15 years old, at 16, at 18, at 20, at 30, at 40 years old even. And they're going through different experiences. But it has to be when their time is right, not when the school says, right, we've got to tick boxes and say that we've done this. Yeah, um, I think with sex education, it has to be age appropriate for a start. Like the, there's um, certain countries out there that starts sex education at five years old. And that isn't, this goes here and this is how you make a baby. It's about your personal body and that it belongs to you. And as a result of that, they have seen a reduction in um, like child abuse cases, not to get too heavy and deep. But when children know that their genitals are theirs and not for anyone else, that gives that child knowledge and em- empowers them to feel confident enough to talk to other people about uh, things like that. So there's definitely a lot of evidence to say that the the younger you start with age-appropriate sex education, the more beneficial that is to that person. But you're right, everyone develops at different times. And I think sex education within schools should revolve more around uh, relationships, the different types of sex that we don't even kind of talk about any other sex other than penis and vagina in the room. Like There's so many other combinations and identities and different scenarios that you can find yourself in in life. Um, that it's it's almost offensive not to even address that uh, within schools. But like I said, that we are making steps that, that it's more detailed than it's kind of ever been before. And, and hopefully, I think as parents see that 
you know, just because your child knows about sex doesn't mean they go out and get pregnant. Like the reason we have such a high pregnancy rate is because of ignorance. I always say if you want kids to be able to make informed decisions, they have to be informed. There's no two ways about it. So, yeah, age-appropriate sex education is something that I'm very uh, positive and, and enthusiastic about. But do you not think then, in the flip side to that, as much as it's age-appropriate, actually it's social media that's taking it down. So, for example, on Instagram, you've now, you've now got the campaign Free the Nipple. You've now got mm-hmm. being really careful what you do and don't say because Instagram will take it down or Twitter will take it down. And, you know, there's so many accounts now that are just selling sex toys. And I'm saying, look, I've got a sex toy. And even that, there has to be some consent over. Yeah, I mean, Instagram particularly is really strict with what you can and can't, um, like, hashtag. So as a sex educator, if I if I am promoting, say, my sex toy range, if I use the hashtag sex in there, it it will kind of squash that. So I'll get such little engagement and I can look at my stats and I'll see that if I took a selfie in the gym and that's got X amount of likes and then I take a selfie with a sex toy, and there's no real difference other than the fact that the, the content of the hashtags is slightly slightly tweaked. So you can see, like, well, I can see and experience in real time how social media can be trying to kind of keep sex educators and sexual content at bay because they've lumped us in with the kind of lewd and the taboo and the porny side of things that they think is unsafe. It's all new. Everyone's kind of still finding their feet with it. I am confident that Instagram will be able to kind of differentiate between sex education and out-and-out sex. I think the responsibility of sex education is at home, in the classroom, and also online. Like, we, there has to be kind of every person fighting the corner for good sex education because if the parents leave it up to the school it's too much pressure on the school. They cannot helpfully educate every single student. And especially, there's lots of evidence to show that if your parents are open and honest with their kids about sex, they'll have a much better relationship and there's a much higher level of trust between child and parent. So they won't find themselves in kind of sticky situations because they'll be able to talk to and express themselves well within their family unit. So it, it's, a, it's a tricky one because it's, for a lot of parents, it's their natural reaction to shy away from that because no one likes to think of their you know, precious child be, like going off the rails or being sexual because that makes them an adult and you you want to enjoy them as children. And that's completely understandable. Um, but there is a certain element of it that says we have to be looking after our kids and that means it, like educating them in all aspects of life. And sex is such a big part of most people's lives. Like, there's a saying if you're not having it you're thinking about it so you know we have we have to take that into consideration well something that's not complicated when it comes to sex and consent and self-love is your new book chasing clouds chasing clouds finding meaning sometimes means finding it yourself um although i'm not up to that bit yet where she's found herself but it's all about elodie and Elodie Taylor, who starts working in a cafe and basically decides that she's had enough of that life and she decides to be an air stewardess. And I presume at some point she will get into the Mile High Club on these amazing jets and I'm sure that there'll be a lot of sex coming up. But let's go back to the beginning of the book. And the first kind of theme that I noticed was about Tom, her boyfriend at the time, and how toxic and gaslighting he was and how much he emotionally abused her. Yeah, so Tom is um, an amalgamation of 
several people that I've dated in my past. I didn't have the best kind of self-esteem when I was younger and I think as a result tended to choose or to go for men that um, I felt were either too good for me or I had to chase um, and there was a bit of achievement in you know going out with them. Um, Tom is... Tom has his own foibles. Like, I didn't want to paint anyone as, like, an out-and-out baddie. Um, I think everyone, you know, they are products of their environment. But for the purpose of this book, Tom is almost the catalyst that makes Elodie realise she needs to take action and that her life is passing her by. I don't know if you... Uh, there's a couple of bits that I really laughed when I was writing because a couple of things that genuinely happened to me and after the experience you think oh my god what what a moron that guy was part of me hopes that my exes will read it and say oh that was me oh am I that bad I think that kind of relationship is um, far more co or elements of that relationship are really common um, and I wanted it to to kind of feel real to like I think every, every woman who reads that book and possibly a lot of guys that read that book will have found themselves in a relationship a little bit like that at some point in their lives. And that's what worries me. And as a guy, when I'm reading it, or when I'm watching Mad at First Sight Australia, and I'm thinking, have I done that before? And you start becoming really self-conscious. Obviously, I've never said to someone, I'm going to take all my friends on holiday and pretend that holiday is for you. I haven't got that money. I work in the media. <laughs> but um, there are times I'm thinking, hold on a minute. Is that what men really are like? Or is that how a female has portrayed them? Or is that just one relationship that has existed before? I think the answer is all of the above. I don't, I don't for one second think all men are like that at all. And Tom is an extreme of, of those behaviours. I think those behaviours do occur. But I think that they can be very human behaviours. People lie. It's everyone lies it's part and parcel of human nature to protect oneself and sometimes those lies come at the cost of someone else's mental health but because you are the center of your own universe boys especially tend to be kind of elevated in society and in the family you know you're the man of the house their opinion matters the most in that relationship and it certainly is the way for how tom uh, views him him and elodie's relationship he's the center of the, of that universe and there's a second theme in the book after that, all about friendships. And it's so refreshing to see actual female friendships because I think a lot of the time now when we read these books, it's just outright bitchiness and outright backstabbing. Whereas actually you've got these three girls, Elodie Taylor, along with Carla and Steph, all work in a cafe together and are actually friends and go through the highs and the lows of someone. And I think we've kind of, especially in the past year, forgotten what it's like to actually have true, real friendships. Yeah, because friendships are, you know, the, none of us have stopped being friends with our friends because of lockdown, but a lot of us have lost elements of our friends because we cannot maintain those friendships in a face-to-face -face way. And being with people and having contact with people and, and you know, human touch is so important for greasing the wheels of relationships, especially friendships, because we spend the majority of our time with our friends and we're, tr we're trying to relax and have fun. You don't spend time with your friends and you're worrying about paying your mortgage or taking the bins out or doing the washing up as you would do if you lived with your partner. Your, the friendships in this book, it's all about kind of kind of banding together. There's a lot of kind of sweet female attitude and, um, and good moments in it. But that's not to say that I didn't pet, draw from some kind of 
real situations where you fall out with your friends and you you know you don't always get on like a house on fire so i try i try to make the uh, female friendships in the book as realistic as i possibly could and I, I drew on many many um people in my life to create those characters and carla is a combination of my two best friends natalie and louise um from university and my sister and I kind of took all the elements of those women that I admire and put it into one character. And that's probably why Carla is my favourite character I've ever written. So hold on a minute. Was it Natalie, Louise or your sister who were obsessed with having pizzas? <laughs> that was my sister. <laughs> that is 100% oh, There's sister. the exclusive press line going out now. <laughs> yeah, it's my sister is very pizza-centric. <laughs> well, and Carla is indeed as well. So friendships, are, it's interesting what you say about friendships during the past year's pandemic, because I'm of the attitude that if someone hasn't made that effort with me and I've said, look, we can go on, because basically, if you think about the past year, we were in lockdown, but we could kind of still go on a walk. Then we could go to restaurants again outside. You can't see anyone, but you can go on walks again. There is no reason why, if you had a true friend, that you couldn't have seen them over the past year. There's no reason you wouldn't have spoken to them. And I think people using COVID as an excuse of, oh, I'm too scared of it, I'm too scared of it, and they literally just drop all communication with you, those are ones I don't want to be friends with now. And I'm very, not harsh, but I think I'm just very true to myself that these friendships don't exist anymore. They might have drifted. I don't think we can use the year as an excuse rather it be that actually we use the year to go actually now we know who our true friends are we know who cares yeah, about yeah, us we know yeah, who's making an really, effort really interesting point and a great way of looking at it it actually has put our friendships under a bit of a microscope so it's like you know if you're in a relationship and you go through some stress and some relationships crumble and some are stronger for it i think the pandemic has done that for friendships I don't have the luxury of living in London, so I didn't even get a, you know, when we were in the tier system. I've been in lockdown since, like, forever, basically, in the north. And so seeing my friends has been pretty much impossible, especially because most of them live in London and down south. So there's been no socialising aside from Zoom calls, which we have been very good at. Um, But, yeah, there's a lot of people that I you know not lost touch with but you would always think would be part of your life and they've just been like I sent uh, during April May time I kind of sent out like a batch group of text messages just checking in on my peripheral friends like you know the ones who if I happen to be in the same city as them I'll text and be like oh are you free for a drink and we'll meet up um and out of kind of the maybe seven or eight messages I sent just checking in on everyone making sure everyone's okay I only actually got two responses so, yeah, you're definitely right about the effort. And it's a two-way street. And if you don't get it in return, you feel like it's not worth your effort. And there's only so much begging you can do. There's only so many times you can message someone, check in on them before you go, well, look, I'm actually just going to give up now. Or I've said to you that I'm not OK. You've not done anything about it. You've not checked in on me ever since. And obviously, someone like yourself who's got a book out now, everyone should be going, oh, my God, you've got a book. That's amazing. I'm flooding to text you. And those who haven't, well, how much do they really care about celebrating your successes as well as your failures? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the whole thing with lockdown has really it tested every relationship that everyone has, you know, family, friends, partners and, and colleagues and everything. So, yeah, having having that support when you have something big happen, like a book coming out, is, is really important. I'm like, lucky enough to say that I've had loads of support. I've had some lovely messages um but the majority of the support has actually come from you know people on social media that i've never really met before but have 
it's a weird friendship, you, your social media friends. Like, I'm friends with a lot of sex educators that, you know, you, you work around and you work with and you might do a bit of work for. But we've never met. And they are the, they're just the most positive, best group of people. Um, and they've been so supportive. And I've had some lovely messages. I've had some, like, you know, if I can do anything, let me know. Um, you know, I'm not expecting everyone to read the book by any stretch, but just having you know, waking up to a couple of messages that say, this is amazing, well done. Does It sets you up for the day and it does give you a little boost of serotonin, a bit of boost of oxytocin, so you do feel good from it. 100%. But I remember when we had this conversation, I don't know why, but I was in Camden and I remember walking over Camden Bridge when you told me that you were writing this book and it must have been two years ago. And yeah, it was. I don't know why I remember this, but and I, again, I don't remember where I was going. I was probably going for dinner somewhere. But I remember getting that excitement that you were releasing another book after The End of Autumn, which was such a good book to begin with. And I think that's the thing. When you know, when you get an author who can write amazingly, you want to be encouraged by them and inspired by them and keep following their journey. I think social media, as much as it has so much hate, the fact that you can watch everyone's journeys and if we, even if we don't see each other enough, you can still feel part of their lives and still feel part of that process that they're on, that we feel part of something. And it's that community feel that sometimes does actually exist. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's feeling part of something and, and feeling like you're not alone. Um, and like you say, social media definitely has its pitfalls and it's you know the dark corners of it and all that negative stuff. But on the flip side, there are some amazing people on social media that you you know you can interact with that you wouldn't normally get a chance to interact with. So I, I just think about I like I, I know Tracy Cox. She was my idol. She's literally the reason I got into doing what I'm doing. I just wanted to be like her. And now, like, I'm not going to say we're best friends, but if I saw her in a bar, I could happily, you know, buy a drink, walk up to her. I can send her a message. Like, she sent me a message to say, well done on my book release. Like, it's just mad that that, that relationship exists because of social media. Well, not social media, but it's like us. I was inspired by you. I wanted to know you, and now I know you. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? Small world that exists. Small world that exists. Now, Chasing Clouds is obviously your second book, and we've gone from brothels to high set jets. Is there a third book in the works? The third book signed the deal um, maybe three weeks ago, so I've not been shouting about it from the rooftops yet um, because the second one has only just come out. But, yeah, that one should be out. I'm hoping Christmas time, but, you know, pandemic pending, um, we'll see. But, yeah, there is a third one coming out called The Matchmaker's Match. New book coming out at Christmas. Are you now following Jane Fallon, Adele Parks and Amanda Prowse of basically releasing a book every four months? Because I absolutely love their books, but I literally can't keep on top of them. I wish I could be that productive and that creative. My books take me about 18 months to write, um, uh, largely because... I'm not a full-time novelist. I have, like, my day job and other things and other commitments to fulfil. So I don't get to do it kind of nine-to-five or however long professional novelists work. If you roll doll, it was, like, one million hours or something, apparently. But I'd love to be that productive. I'm just just not... I don't have it in me. My fingers don't go that fast. Well, what does go fast is my fingers when they're going through your book. Annabelle Knight, your book, Chasing Clouds, (laughs) is out now.
I love Annabelle. I love Annabelle. Her book, Chasing Clouds, is out now. Honestly, it is such a good read. And also, whilst you're at it, buy Endless Autumn because I really enjoyed it. And even as a guy, there's a lot of sex in there. And actually, it was quite therapeutic. I quite enjoyed that. Um, you've been listening to Security and Secure with me, Johnny C. If you like what you heard, please do rate the podcast and like it and subscribe to it. You know the drill. Go on to Apple iTunes, go down where it's got five stars, leave five stars and a really nice review. Then share it on your social media and let me know you've listened to the episode. I'm at Johnny Seifert and also on Instagram at Security and Secure Podcast. It's where I put up little teasers for all the episodes for you to enjoy as well. And that's it for this week. I've been Johnny Seifert. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.